welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hey everybody, Angie Diva covering Sex and Health. It is with uh, my honor to introduce our next speaker. Um, I had the opportunity of meeting Jocelyn here one year ago, and I also had the opportunity to share my own story here um, as a speaker. And my hope or prayer for people is that when I'm sharing that at least one thing will resonate and help them in some way. That's all I hope for is one person. I had a couple people come up to me last year afterwards, and Jocelyn was one of them. And since last year, we've been chatting almost every week. And so she asked me to sponsor her. So we've been working together on the essay program. So with um, my great pleasure, Nate Jocelyn. It's a long walk. <laughs> it's kind of reminiscent of the walk of shame, but I don't do that anymore. Thank you. Um, I'm a sexaholic. My name is Jocelyn. Thank you, Angie, Kevin, and the committee for allowing me to be a service. It's really an honor to speak to my essay and SNM family. I couldn't sleep last night. Um, by the way, you know it pulled up um, five minutes, not two minutes? Yeah. Okay. Um, I couldn't sleep last night. I was really restless. I was tossing and turning and wasn't quite sure why. So finally, uh, it was a, it, an hour before the alarm was going to go off. So I wrote down this. My sexaholism story weighs heavily on my heart. Look back, but don't stare. I pray the brother who asked the question at the end of John's share is still here. Stay close. God is here. So I've got these cards. I actually had them prepared. I thought I would just, you know, wing it. <laughs> Everybody had cards and stuff. So either these are going to be a distraction or they're going to help me and I'll look at my notes. I don't know. I actually carry a big book with me because this gives me a lot of comfort. Oh, yeah, it was here a year ago. Um, as an SMM. And I was uh, a grateful member of SMON. I've been in SMON since 2016. The qualifier at that time was my former husband. He was a sexaholic, not me. And something was happening during the retreat. Every time I spoke at an SMON meeting, I felt really nervous and very self-conscious. It had never happened to me before. 
I was so afraid that if my Esalen family knew that I qualified for SA, that they would reject me, that they would see me as the enemy. And I couldn't avoid what was happening when I heard the SA problem. Red. I heard it read and I went, oh, it's time. It's time for me to deal with this thing that I've been carrying around for decades. And it was not my first sit in essay. And I actually wrote in the mid 80s in New York City that should have told you something. No, not you. Should have told me something, but it didn't. Um, I've been very protective over the past year of my anonymity. Um, the whole year that I have been going to my home for the essay, it's a women's meeting on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Uh, I haven't broken my anonymity, but well, only broken my anonymity to a couple of people. Um, my husband, that was kind of weird, even though he has his own recovery path, it was weird. He didn't actually count on that. Um, surprise! Uh, but I assured him I had not acted out since I met him. We've only uh, known each other a couple of years. Uh, I wrote my anonymity to my therapist that I've been seeing off and on for about eight years, and she said, um, me for eight years have been telling me about your sex capades and how they ruined your life, and now you're telling me you're an addict. <laughs> and I was like, I'm a sexaholic. I speak in code. I really was not lying. I just hadn't admitted it to myself, so I couldn't tell you that. I mean, I was kind of telling you, but I wasn't saying it. Not really. Not yet. Not out loud. Uh, I told my a couple of days ago. I told my Esmon sponsor because I thought. And she tunes in and she hears my voice and she's like, I know that voice. <laughs> she's a sexaholic. <laughs> um, but in fact, she said, you know, I already knew. Let me get away. Don't you know? She goes, because you were attending another S program when I met you. And uh, you take your steps with me and I know your story. I was like, oh, okay, I can't be going with that. I see. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Uh, and about a week or two ago, I was doing my weekly uh, step work with my precious sponsee, who's here today, my Esalen sponsee. She was very excited. She was coming. She said, are you, are you going to the retreat? I said, yeah, yeah, I am, actually. I said, I'm, I'm going to be speaking. She said, oh, that's great. I said, um... You should probably know I'm speaking as a sexaholic. <laughs> and my in the imagination, which doesn't always give me accurate feedback, in my imagination, she went, oh, what? <laughs> she didn't. She was incredibly gracious. Uh, and it was like God was going, hey, you know that anonymity you've been protecting? Well, you're not only going to break your anonymity to your SNR, family, but to 200 of your closest friends. <laughs> Where's, yeah, if, if that plea to get um, people to come on virtually, maybe that's 300 of my closest friends are now going to know. So I was reading the promises. I was actually writing them out out of the big book. Step nine, page 84-ish. Um, and there are promises in all the steps. You don't have to wait to step nine. Uh, we are going to know new freedom. We will not regret the past. We should shut the door on it. 
no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And then my favorite one, God is doing for me, I could not do for myself. So I grew up uh, with, I believe, sexaholism in my family. I witnessed incest. There was definitely sexaholism in my neighborhood. Uh, the older kids who babysat me, and I was molested by several of them. Um, what I understand today was that I come by it honestly, but not necessarily because of the sexual trauma, because a lot of people experience sadly sexual trauma. But I am wired for addiction. And I got planted in my head. You know, I interpreted that as sex is the solution. And I'm an addict. I'm addicted. I'm addicted to lust. That's why that was the solution for me. So my brain is wired for the dopamine hit. I know that about myself. I got a lot of information that says that. A lot of addictions that, by God's grace, I have recovered from. And I believe that everybody lived in parallel worlds. Like me, I thought my reality was everybody's reality. And that was my brick-and-mortar life. I grew up, I went to school, got jobs, got married, had kids. And then my fantasy life. And my fantasy life... And I saw, I saw everything in my life through my addiction to lust. And I lived in a romance novel, in an X-rated, increasingly X-rated romance novel. When I was 16, I discovered alcohol. And alcohol was the elixir. It stripped away all of my inhibitions. And it allowed me to start to act out with a vengeance, what was formerly a fantasy in my head. So I spent the next 14 years in a progressive slide of compulsively seeking the dopamine hit in false connections with people. I was addicted to the chase, to the intrigue, to the sense of infatuation. But as the disease progressed over the years, that sense of intrigue and what it took to intrigue me became, it, it required more novelty, more danger for me to get the same hit. And I became really desensitized to, you know, like, I just became desensitized. My mind became desensitized to what I was doing. And I lied to myself. I had to lie to myself to justify what I was doing. I really saw myself as a principled person. I had this childhood uh, dream this fairy tale that I was going to meet a nice guy, get married, have kids. And that, that uh, fairy tale never left my mind. Um, but it was becoming more and more evident that when, how I was acting out was going to pretend that would ever happen. So I want to bring you back um, to something that happened to me in the 1970s. Um, I was in my 20s. Um, I'm starting to ask myself questions like, why am I here? Like, what is my purpose? I had, I was a spiritual seeker and was really in a lot of distress. I didn't know what my higher power wanted me to do for my life, to, to, to add something to other people, to the world. And so I had this three-day experience of a profound awakening where I felt this sense of peace that I've never known. I could actually see this white light of 
love of energy connecting me to everyone. And I knew that it was a God, a living God, introducing himself and making himself known. And I knew that that mysterious force was what was going to be the answer for my life. Unfortunately, I continued in my self-destructive uh, pursuit of the dopamine hit for another eight years, approximately. And I felt worthless and guilty. What's wrong with me that I can't access this God that I've been shown? What is wrong with me? I felt like a hypocrite. I felt really inadequate. Lust progressed because it is an addiction to lust. It took me nine months in recovery and essay to actually read We Are Powerless Over Lust. I always transposed the word and saw sex or sexaholics. It's essay. Aren't I powerless over sex? Well, when I'm acting out, I am powerless over it, but the truth is I'm powerless over the drive, the lust, the energy, the self-centeredness, the the part of me that lies, that tells me I deserve more than my share. Um, and especially the big lie, I'm not hurting anybody. In 1984, I was in New York City. There was a disease run rampant. They had just needed AIDS. And I was absolutely terrified that my acting health was me. I started to make promises. I won't do it again. I'll use protection. I'll do this. I won't do that. I broke all my promises, I just couldn't stop. As a result of those fears, um, I got into AA, and thank God AA stuck, I got sober. I also went into SA for a few months. It was the only place that I could talk about my fears of my out of control behavior and how terrified I was that my number was gonna be up because I was playing Russian roulette. Thank God I'm okay. By divine grace. After a couple of months, I left SA because I thought that alcohol was the problem. Well, alcohol was the problem. I thought without alcohol, I wouldn't be acting out. And that iteration of my sexaholism did stop. The lust did not go underground. It was very much alive and well. The acting out in that indiscriminate way did stop the sobriety. Some of it was quite my belief that it stopped. So, Fast forward. So I don't say that I don't say that sexaholism during those years that followed um, went into remission because it wasn't treated. It went into hibernation. And 28 years later, I'm now a single parent. My kids are out of home, and I am lonely. And I believe it was the disease of lust talking to me in my voice, sounding very convincing. It comes up with incredibly compelling arguments. The wife of the single shiny thing over there. And Lust told me the, the solution to your loneliness is online dating. So, oh, and at that time, there was a book called The Secret. I don't know if any of you know that book, but if you want to get an untreated sexaholic to buy your book, call it The Secret. Um, <laughs> I love this. I like there's a big walking contradiction of the double life. So I bought the book. And furthermore, I found out that it 
it proposed this technique, which I was really good at already. It said that you can visualize using all your senses over and over the thing you want the most. You can attract it into your life. And I have been doing that my entire life. <laughs> so I really focused my fantasies on visualization with all my senses. And I did attract the love of my life into my life. A six foot two, elite athlete, intelligent, successful, somewhat available. And I say somewhat because after I married him, I found out he was available to a lot of men and women, not just me. And what happens when you put two untreated sexaholics together? It was ugly. The day I met him, the minute I met him, I said to myself, I'm in trouble. It's back. And I became completely consumed with lust for him. And I told myself it's all legit because it's within the context of marriage. It was very ugly. It was very... Ugh. I don't like to go back to that part of my life because it terrified me what happened to my mind, to my willingness to violate all my boundaries, all my principles, all my values. And I still thought of myself as a good person. And it was legitimate. I was getting very, very sick. Around year four uh, of my marriage, I ended up in treatment with a CSAP. That should have been a clue. Sex addiction counselor. But she treated partners of sex addicts. Well, he was the problem. He was the sex addict, not me. So that was perfect. But it did not escape my... I, I noticed that the ladies... Those beautiful ladies being treated by the CSAT. I was the only one still having sex with my husband. And they would ask me from time to time, how could I do that? I didn't have a good answer. I really felt like my thinking was so twisted. I thought it's, you know, given me against the world, like we're having this love affair of the century. It's chemistry. He's the one. Uh, yeah. During those, that six and a half year period was the most toxic, deadly expression of my sexaholism. At the end of the two year treatment, uh, my therapist started saying to me things like, so I was reporting everything to work with complete detachment. I had no connection to the words I was saying, the atrocities that I was recording, but the things I was doing. And she was saying things to me like, your life is in danger. I'm so afraid for you. And I would say, at a certain point, I started going in and I I know I'm going to die. I can't stop. I was completely enslaved to lust. On one day, and I think it was 2016, no, 2018, a little bit more, 
I was on my knees praying the only prayer I could think of, God, please help me. No sooner than I said that prayer that my daughter, my 30-year-old daughter from New York called me, she wanted to come see me. She did. I felt compelled to tell her I was trying to get out of this very hill marriage. And I... I didn't... Yeah. Thank you. I'm trying to get out of this very hill marriage, and uh, that I knew that I fooled everybody, and she stopped me, and she said, you didn't fool us. We're scared. We don't know how to help you. We don't understand what's happening to you. Now, when I'm in active sexaholism, and I think I fool people, we think we fool people closest to us. Maybe some people are blindsided, but my experience was that the people closest to me knew something was terribly wrong. We didn't know it was sexaholism on either side. So I wasn't done. God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. The police eventually did remove him, but I wasn't done. I was still in denial. I was still addicted. He came over a couple of times in the next couple of months. I slept with him two more times. The third time, I took my SMON slash AA sponsor's advice, and I surrounded myself in the house that I take with people from the program, and we sat around the table, and we read out of the big book. While my former husband was clearing out the last of his belongings, it makes me very emotional because that was the day I surrendered. I knew that the Jew was up. So, where am I in today? Um, the good news is, oh, so much, so much, so much good news. So much good news. Um, I am free. I am free. I could lose it in a moment. I have a daily reprieve dependent on my spiritual condition. Um, my wife maintains spiritual fitness. I go to a meeting of some kind every day. I do this stuff to the best of my ability every day. I'm sponsored. I sponsor women. I lead meetings. I pray a lot. I ask God constantly for direction. I don't always listen. I don't always like the answer. Sometimes I have to suffer. Then I go, you know, okay. Self-will doesn't really work for me. All the, all the evidence is in self-work really doesn't work too well for me. But surrendering to my higher power does, has, always. And I guess if I can leave you with this, that um, my fear was after I had that spiritual awakening that I would never feel God's grace and God's presence again. The only time I didn't feel it after that was when I was in that six-year explosion of lust. Um, every time I come into a meeting, especially a gathering like this of both, both fellowships, because I wear both hats, I'm both the person who experienced sexaholism of others, and I was the perpetrator. So we're not so different. Um, I feel so truly, truly blessed. I see the light, this love that everybody here, and I feel so hopeful, even if you're suffering today. I'm so hopeful that you're here in your chair right now. Don't leave before the miracle, somebody else said. Thank you.
Uh, during this particular talk, we have two more things to remember before tomorrow morning. Uh, we have questions. We have an old timers panel. So if you have some great questions for some old timers, that's going to be tomorrow. And we're going to pass them around to the box. Yes, uh, I need somebody, we're going to have our seventh tradition right now, so we're going to just have it right there and just kind of pass it back and forth, and pass it back and forth, and then, it'll be the timer, I need somebody else to do it. Okay. And then, if you would, take it out to uh, the registration chairman, and he'll, he'll uh, add it up, and he'll let everybody know what the seventh tradition is. Okay. So it's just kind of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and in the end, back and forth, back and forth, and then the last person... Just take it out to the registration chair. Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank you so much. Yes. Uh, I don't want to get away with it. My, my group will also help out afterwards, too. Okay. So the next speaker is a fantastic speaker. And the person introducing is also a fantastic person. <laughs> we get two fantastic people. Wow. We've got many fantastic people. Wow. So I'm going to introduce Danny, who's going to introduce Eric. <laughs> I'm nervous and uh, a little caffeine. <laughs> Um, hi, my name is Danny. I'm a Grateful Ethanol member. Uh, I'm also grateful. I'm also grateful to be here with you all and uh, honored uh, to introduce our next speaker. Uh, I met Eric about uh, two years ago through our uh, RCA meeting, which is uh, Recovery to the Post Knowledge. His service work and shares has uh, made a strong impact. And my wife and I's uh, recovery as a couple. Um, so personally, I, I owe him, like I owe him a lot. He's a type of person that uh, simple things. Uh, so even though Eric and I have met uh, each other a couple years ago, yesterday was actually the first time that we met face to face. Uh, we're both on the opposite side of the country, so yeah, a lot of small mirrors. Um, yeah, I give him a big hug and. <laughs> He's a lot taller than I thought he was. <laughs> and he said, yeah, because it's rooted that you're a lot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> Eric is, uh, he's the group uh, secretary. Uh, he loves sharing our message, and he sponsors his three young children. I'll talk to you more about that. So if you haven't met Eric, my friend, I'm happy to introduce Empty. Yeah. I'm going to do things slightly differently. This out the way. I'm also going to take my shoes off. First of all, reason for number one, move the podium wide. I don't like to stand behind the podium. It's a block. It's also a crutch. Somebody in here mentioned that we are having a conversation. I want to have a conversation. I don't want to be a speaker. 
this point of view, I was lucky enough to simply be invited to stand on this stage. That's why I took my shoes off. Because somebody else, I need to turn to my notes because it was beautiful, and I'm so grateful for being here today. Somebody said, wherever you find God, go there often. I go three places often. One is my house. Two is my church. And three is the recovery rooms. This is hallowed and holy ground. The weather to make my shoes. How many Mickey Bush fans do we have in the world? <laughs> okay. Mickey Bush, super famous AA guy. When you have time, go look at him up because he has a whole journal full of acronyms. This guy was fond of acronyms. My favorite, sober. Son of a bitch, everything's real. <laughs> I'm a guy that doesn't like to live in reality. Son of a bitch, everything's real. My wife reminds me all the time, Eric, these are the good old days. Somebody else said that in here, and I was like, yes, these are the good old days. See, if I'm not living in reality, that I'm not present for the here and now. I miss what happens now because I'm thinking about the past or obsessing about the future or doing something crazy. Mm. These are the good old days. And I want to remember them fondly. I told Kevin before I came up here, now I remember it. I didn't say a prayer before we started, and I'd like to. In my faith tradition, we have this saying for those that read prayers out of the book. We say, in these or similar words. So in these or similar words, I'm going to say the third step prayer. It's not going to be out of the book. God, I offer myself to you. I offer ourselves to you to do with us as you will. Hold us in your hands right now. That our minds and our hearts may be opened so that we may better do your will always. Amen. So, my name is Eric H. I am a grateful member of Essanon. I have been in the rooms of Essanon for about a year and a half. And also, I'm happy to say that in another program, I just got my three-year chip on January 14th of this year. The reality was, is that I was born into Essanon. I didn't choose it for myself. I was born into it. I come from a family of secrets. I was telling somebody at lunch today because they were relaying some story about their family, and I said, it's wonderful to hear you have a relationship with your son that is as open about alcohol and drug use and whatever was going on as it is. I think that's really special because in my house, if I asked my dad any of those questions, they would never get answered. They would get conflicted. They would be ignored. One of my deepest memories is of a secret my father kept from me for 20 years. I was 20 years old. My brother was two years under me. He was 18. And the reason 
I know the time now because I thought I had made this memory up. But my brother, it seared into his mind, and he said, no, I was 18, and knowing how old, much older I am, I was like, okay, I must have been 20. My dad brought us to a restaurant. We ate the entire meal. We were sitting. He had paid the bill. We were finishing our drinks or whatever it was. And he said to my brother and myself, guys, what would you say if I told you that I had been divorced? WTF, bro. <laughs> it came out of nowhere. I'm 20 years old. I'm an adult. You're telling me now you had a previous marriage, somebody other than my mom, maybe that was significant. We never spoke about it again until I brought it up last year from working this program. Because in my crazy mind, I thought I had made the damn thing up. So my dad and I were on a long car ride, and I turned to him and I said, Dad, I need to ask you a really important question, because in my mind, I literally think I made this up. And he said, no, you didn't make it up, Eric, but I don't want to talk about it. See, my dad had been in two previous relationships prior to my mother that ended with him being cheated on. I was born into Essanon because of my father's interaction with sex addicts. That bull built for himself, became a wall that nobody else was allowed over, even his own children. I can't change him. I can't break that wall down as hard as I've tried over the last 43 years. But that's part of who he is. And somebody mentioned earlier, our parents only give us the little bit that they have available. That's all I can ever think that he will give me. There was another person that brought me into the rooms of Essanon, and I'm internally grateful for her help. Because in my own life, I got myself stuck in a relationship with a woman that I now re recognize was an emotional affair. And it's so powerful to hear the women on this stage who are in SA talk about their experience because it's like, oh yeah, I saw that. That was my lived experience. I got sucked into a relationship. I thought I was friends with this woman. We were both doing service work in our church organization. We thought we were, we were hanging out all the time. We were texting back and forth. Da, 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 da. And then it got weird. All of a sudden, I was being sexually harassed. All of a sudden, stuff started to happen. I was like, I don't think it happened like that. But right at the gas line, all this stuff started happening. My goodness. But she was the one that told me that the rooms were available. And so when that relationship ended, that's when I sought out help. I found help. And what I recognize now is somebody said, God has no grandchildren. I believe that to be true. I look out upon this room and see all of the beautiful children of God here. And I'm just like one of you. I'm broken. I screw up a lot. I'm just like one of them. But somehow, some way, our higher power collectively loves and thinks each of one of us is worthy. And so for that, I am eternally grateful. I want to read a little bit about the what 
I don't even know. <laughs> Something you mentioned in one of the meetings earlier. I thought it was really beautiful. This is what I love coming to these conferences. I've never been to one of these. And it's really powerful when you hear and pick up on, oh, that's a good tidbit. Oh, I want to bring that home. Oh, I want to implement this principle this way into my life. Somebody said the S rooms, S-A-S-N-R, are the, the house at the final end of the street. It's like the final place you go to, right? You can go through all the other programs and find the A end up here. I have a friend in real estate who flips houses, though. And what's the rule? You find the worst house on the best block. That's what I think we have right here. We're all flipping. We're all rebuilding the worst house on the best block. That's what I find here. I find so much love and joy and peace and serenity and all that stuff, even in the midst of all this chaos. Yeah, the house has a burst pipe. Yeah, the drywall's moldy. Yeah, maybe the rafters need to be fixed and there's rats. Who the frick cares? <laughs> We're rebuilding the house, man. It's going to be freaking awesome when it's done. That's what I believe. I stand here today quite nervous, actually, having a small panic attack. Because really, the reality is I feel very unworthy to be up here. But somebody else invited me, and in that moment, I was like, well, if they think I'm worthy, then there's got to be something to this. And so I want to share a little bit about the tools of recovery that I've used. First and foremost is surrender. I love my wife. I love what Kevin and Angie have rebuilt in their marriage, and I look to them as a model. I love what I hear from some of the women in this room because my family of origin, as chaotic and crazy as it is, some of the women in this room, whether they know it or not, are the mother I never had. On either side of the street, it doesn't matter because they can offer me something that I didn't get. And so as I get to reparent the little kid in me that's scared and afraid and whatever it is, I get to listen to the women of these rooms and get something. Ah, that's what I wish my mother would have said, but she didn't. But somebody said it now, and that heals the process. I honestly don't know whether or not my wife is in recovery. She claims to have signed up for this he might be here on Zoom right now. I don't know. But I know she's been exhibiting a lot of the chaotic behaviors of an addict. And that makes me extremely sad. But I don't control her. I no longer try to fix, manage, and all the crazy things that us and ons do. The best of my ability. Because I have that tool of surrender. The tool of surrender says... Can I do all the things? Can I play God in everybody's life to make all the pieces line up? I cannot. In fact, coming here this week, it was literally an act of God because he put things into motion. He allowed me to come here today to be here with all of you because the God of my knew I needed to be here. Regardless of my family, regardless of my wife. The great thing about surrender is we get to practice it every day. And so for me, even if I'm not perfect at it yet, I practice it every single day. 
And I'm getting quicker at recognizing when I'm not in alignment with God's will. And so that's a really powerful tool for me when I recognize deep down inside, like I was having a small panic attack before I got on stage, right? Okay, that means I'm not in alignment. Where am I not in alignment? Say the serenity prayer. Does God grant me the serenity to be willing to accept whatever happens next? The other tool that I use all the time is prayer and meditation. That is bedrock part of my recovery. And it's become more and more powerful the more and more I practice it. If you're still working those first few steps, trying to figure out who the God of your understanding is, I hope and pray that you find some kind of prayer and meditation that works for you. Because there is nothing more peaceful for me now when I get up in the morning. And I used to be the kind of guy, again, the fixing, the controlling, the managing, all that craziness. This is my prayer time. Let my kids run in. Now they're taking my time. No, not anymore. I'm going to get to how I sponsor my children in a minute. <laughs> but if one of them comes in now and they say, Dad, I need to snuggle you. You need to snuggle me? You can't go talk to your mom? She's, I'm, usually I'm on the couch or like on my knees or somewhere other than the nice warm bed. No, Dad, I need you. Oh, crap. Yeah, you do. Come here. That becomes my prayer. That becomes my meditation. Because they need me. And the God of my understanding gave them to me as a gift. Amen. Am I going to throw them out the door? Nope. Not anymore. Because I grew up in a house that was emotionally distant. I grew up in a house that didn't have love. I literally, when I did my night step in the other program, I looked my parents in the eye and I said, am I making this up or did you simply never say I love you? And they had to look me in the eye and they said, we never did. So I told them at that moment, I said, I don't care now if you say it to me or not. I can let that go. But I'm going to tell you that I love you because I do. As screwed up as our family might be, I still love you. So when my kids come to me, I no, you're mine. Not in that controlling sense, but we can pray together. We can sit here in silence together, whatever that looks like. Third tool of recovery, setting healthy boundaries. Holy cow. I was the most, somebody was telling me, I've got the trifecta of self-abandonment. I have a fear of rejection. I have something else I can't remember off the top of my head, and I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> you want something done? Just come to me. I will give up everything that's important to me to help you. I've come to believe that is not actually what my higher power calls me to. Does my higher power call me to service? Absolutely. But the self-abandonment? No. So how do I go about setting healthy boundaries? One, now I'm aware of it. So when I'm aware of it, now I feel when I am giving myself away in an unhealthy way. And so I can take a pause and say, mm, nope, hold on, let me check that. Is this in alignment with what God wants? If not, I'm going to have to say no. 
Number two, how can I be of service if I'm not of service to myself? As I say in the big book, we can't pour from an empty cup, right? So why am I trying to pour from an empty cup? Talked about it a whole bunch. That feeling of self-importance, that feeling of, well, if you need me, maybe you'll care about me. But I've come to understand there is only one being, as I understand him, who needs me every single day, and that is my higher power. There's a third thing. I haven't come up with this completely, but I've heard some people talk around it. So it's just something that came to me the other day. Maybe we'll run a workshop on it sometime when I have a cohesive hold to it. It literally came to me right before I boarded the plane to come out here. It's this idea of being aggressively compassionate. It might sound oxymoronic, but it's not because I've heard several people talk about it in a way that at least makes sense to me, right? You want to take a little bite of shut up or a big bite of shut up? Or for me, Fergie, shut up, just shut up, shut up. <laughs> how, do, how do I be aggressively compassionate towards somebody? Thank you. Or towards myself. Maybe I'm the one that needs to shut up and listen. Maybe I need to tell someone with all the love and compassion in my heart that what they are doing is harming me. Because the self-abandoner in me will be like, yeah, beat me up, whatever, as long as you need me. I don't like that. And that's not what God wants from me. So that's that idea of so, uh, aggressive compassion and setting healthy boundaries. Number four, ask for what I need. Right? We talked about that in the panel this morning. I don't need to really go over that. But asking for what I need and letting go of expectations. Expectations are premeditated resentments. So what does that look like in my house? My wife, I need a hug. Or she might say, Eric, I need a hug from you. Oh, I would love to hug you right now. I just came in from mowing the lawn. I got grass. I'm sweaty. I'm stinky, right? But I need a hug. Okay, if you're willing to accept that stink and that grossness, I'll give you a hug. But if you wait five minutes, I'm going to jump in the shower and be clean and smell nice. Okay. And the other thing that I'm working on is saying out loud that sometimes I can't provide to you the thing that you expect from me. I can't provide your need right at this minute. I don't like to say no. But sometimes I simply have to because I can't provide for you what it is that you think I can provide for you. And then number five, give up the victim mentality. Everybody has said it on this stage, or at least some form of it on this stage. We're not very much different, S.A. and S.A.N.A.N. And so by giving up the victim mentality, we no longer say, well, who's the victim and who's the oppressor? Who's the betrayer and who's betrayed? No, we all have our own stuff to work on. Because giving up the victim mentality means it's another layer of surrender. If I am wallowing in my own victimhood, then I am not surrendering. It's another form of healthy boundaries. And if I give up my victim mentality, then I get to take positive action to make my life more fulfilling not expecting anybody else to meet either a spoken or an unspoken need. With the few minutes that I have left, 
I want to talk a little bit about the miracles. I've got about two minutes left, so I'll go over a couple of these. I said I would talk a little bit about sponsoring my children because I didn't grow up in a healthy household. I want my children to at least get the tools that maybe I didn't get that I've received from picking them up in these rooms. So we were walking into school. I dropped them off every day, and this is one of the things I love is I get to drive my children to school and drop them off. My middle daughter is still in kindergarten, so she still wants me to walk in, and she still wants to give me a hug before she walks off to school. Girlfriend, you have that as long as you want. <laughs> but my oldest daughter, my wife puts out their clothes to make getting ready in the morning easier, so she put out their clothes, and my oldest daughter had a pair of white pants that my wife laid out for her. And as we were walking into school, my oldest got into this very codependent, anxious state, and I probably have handed that on to her, and I apologize for that. But she was wearing these white pants, and she said, oh, I'm going to get them dirty. I might put a hole in them. I might do that, da, 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 da. She had this whole litany of things about why she shouldn't be wearing white pants. And my middle daughter, who was slightly ahead of us, turns around and says, Mama put those pants out for you. Don't even worry about what happens to them. Somebody else made that choice. I love it. <laughs> my dad, on the way to the airport, my dad loves to drop bombs. Again, this is his spirit work. I believe this is his spirit work. He dropped a bomb on me at the way to the airport. I talked to you about the restaurant, right? So I'm driving to the airport. My dad calls me on the phone and he says, Eric, I'm going to the uh, lawyer's office. And somebody, one of the very first speakers, talked about their aging parent being the executor on the stage. So cut to the chase. Eric, I'm on the phone. It's a three-minute conversation. Eric, your brother's going to be the executor of the estate. Okay. <laughs> and a couple of people I've told this story to already, and they looked at me like, were you pissed? No, I wasn't. You know why? Because I'm the executor on my in-law's estate, and I don't want to do two for one. Okay? <laughs> Bro, you can have that one. And I'm not mad at the guy. Because I don't need to be. He can make his own choices. You want my brother to be the executor? Great. You think he's going to do a better job than me? Great. I hope he does. It's your choice. I don't need to get wrapped up in it. My friends, I hope I've been able to provide a little experience, strength, and hope today. So as we close, we've got zero minutes. Let's uh, bow our heads after a moment of silence and say that we form the serenity prayer. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.